Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will speak more about the biblical phrase, let there be. This message and previous messages are available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Turn, if you would, uh, to Genesis, and just to give encourage, we're making great progress, so we're not going to read verse 1 this morning. We're going to read verse 2. All right, so here we go. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the water, the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day. The darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were day one, were the first day. Now, last week, you remember, we learned some very important truths about God. So good to learn about God. And so many times we read, let there be, and then we read, let there, and there was. Let there be, and there was. And what does that teach us about God? Anybody remember? What does that teach us about God from last week? That he is a God of what? Let bees. Let bees, yeah, let bees. Yeah, it was that Scottish accent that I was trying to discern through. But I finally got it. Let bees, that's right, God's a beekeeper. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, he's a God of let bees, which means that he is a God of vision. God is a God of vision. That's good. We should be people of vision also. He's not stagnant. So in what we saw, is there any faith that needs to be exercised if you were there and you weren't? In Genesis 1... There's no faith involved, right? Let there be, there was, let there be, there was, let there be, there was. Where's the faith? No faith. But, like you said, Bill, now we have to exercise faith because we live in a time of let there be and what? And not yet, right? And not yet. So then it was let there be and there was, and now it's a day of let there be and not yet. But there will be. And that's faith. See, that's where we have to have faith. You remember the universal rules in life? Remember? I gave you two. I'm going to give you a third one this morning. What's the first universal rule of life? Don't make God mad. Don't make God mad. What's the second universal rule of life? Make God happy. Now I'm going to take you to the third universal rule of life. Okay, very complicated. Write it down. Three words. Take God seriously. Take God seriously. That's the third universal rule of life. According to who? According to me. Anyway. So, (laughs) it's the third universal rule of life. Take God seriously. The Bible starts out with this very important phrase, let there be. And And then we read, and there was. But that phrase, let there be, those three words, should burn within our minds. Very, very important. Why? Because in that verse 3, we have a pattern that is unwritten, but it's present in the Bible. We have all throughout the Bible, let there be, but it's not written. And our great challenge in life is to be able to identify those unwritten phrases throughout the Bible, because that's what it is. Get in the habit of doing that. When you read your Bible, say to yourself, oh, look at that. There's one of those let there be statements, just like I read in Genesis 1. There it is. For example, let me show you how this works. Turn to Deuteronomy 31.8. And the Lord, he it is, that doth go before thee, he will be with thee, he will not fail thee, neither forsake thee, fear not, neither be dismayed. Now, that's also, by the way, anybody, does anybody recognize that where it may have been repeated in, it was repeated, in the New Testament? Everything that's in the Old Testament, everything, that, what you have in the Old Testament is a flower pots. 
Okay, this is a flower pot from which a verse in the New Testament sprung up and flowered. And where is it? Hebrews 13, 5. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, what? You know the verse. You know the verse. You just need to see which flower pot it came out of. It came out of this flower pot here in Deuteronomy 31, 8. All right? Because why? Well, isn't that what he's saying? I will be with thee, I will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Isn't that the same thing? As, as, it is the same thing. Don't you think it's the same thing? Please think it's the same thing. Hebrews <laughs> 13.5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. All right. So there's an unwritten phrase, let there be. What? Let there be God's presence accompanying me, accompanying you through life. Do you see it? He's saying that, let there be. And then you say, by faith, and there is God's presence accompanying me in life. See what I mean? That's taking God seriously. That's taking this verse and saying that God said, let there be. And you say, by faith, and there is God's presence accompanying me through life. Let me show you two more examples since you're catching on to it so well. Turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the most famous psalm in the Bible. Now, last verse, Psalm 23. What's it say? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. All right. Let there be. Let there be what? Tell me. First part of the verse. Let there be what? Goodness and mercy for all the days of my life. God says that. Let there be goodness and mercy all the days of my life. And then we say by faith, and there is what? There is goodness and mercy. For all the days of my life. See, that's taking God seriously. You see what I mean? Now, by the way, by the way, why does it say follow in this verse? Why does it say follow? Because he leadeth. Okay, very good. So, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Okay, now, I sent to my friend Dorothy Greenstein, the Polish Holocaust survivor, the DVD on Zvi Kalischer. She was, he was a Polish Holocaust survivor, and he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you know his son, Menno Kalischer, is the pastor in Jerusalem Church. Anyway, Zvi said that he knew God was protecting him in the Warsaw Ghetto. Now, Dorothy was also in the Warsaw Ghetto, and she said, no, Dorothy's very good at uh, at pointing out what she doesn't agree with. No, 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 she said, I don't think he knew at the time that God was protecting him, because she said, I was also in the Warsaw Ghetto, and I didn't know God was protecting me, and she said, until later. She's like, during the Holocaust, when one day she was in this, uh, she was hiding from the Nazi soldiers, and she was hiding as a 13-year-old girl in the dormitories of the work camps where the Jews slept in these dormitories, and they would report to the Germans to work every day, and the dorms were supposed to be emptied out, and she was hiding in the top bunk of one of the dorms, and the Germans were checking to make sure the dorms were empty, because if they found anyone who didn't come out when they were supposed to, they'd shoot and kill them right away on the spot. Because the dorms were supposed to be empty, but the dorms were full of lice. 
And so the Germans didn't like to go into the, the, the dorms to search in them, so they sent in the German shepherd dogs to go there. And when the dogs would see someone, they would bark, and then the Germans would go in and kill the person. Well, on that day, as I mentioned, she was 13 years old, and she was hiding in the top bunk of this one dorm, and the German shepherd dog came in, and he stood up on his hind legs, and his snout was that far from her face. <laughs> they were snout to snout. Uh, uh, Dorothy doesn't have snout. They were, they were nose to snout, okay? They were that close, and she was a 13-year-old girl, and she was petrified. Her heart almost was beating out of her chest. And you know what happened? That dog didn't make a sound. Did not make a sound. Didn't bark. And she was saved. Afterward, she said, she looked back on it, she turned around and looked back on that memory, and she realized goodness and mercy shut that dog's mouth. So they didn't make a sound. And I told my friend Dorothy, and you can pray for her, that I've been sent into her life as another goodness and mercy to point her to the Lord Jesus Christ to save her from the worst dog trying to pull her into hell. Now, this is the first let there be in this last verse of Psalm 23. Let there be goodness and mercy in our lives. But when we look at it, look at it and, and, and see it, we, we, as we said, we said by faith, there was God's mercy and goodness following me. By the way, um, this is a good practice to get into personally and family-wise and whatever-wise. Because over 30 years ago in our company, we started a, a book still have this book, and every Friday we took time to review the last week in our company, and then we would write down the specific goodnesses and mercies of God for the business for that past week. We still do it, don't write in the book, but we still, you know, go back and, and look. Let me suggest that to you as a practice, as a personal practice, that on Friday, that on Saturday, that you take time to turn around and see the goodness and mercy that's been following you for the past week and write it down. Because when you do that, then you're going to be following the third universal rule in life, which is... Take God seriously. It's not don't make your wife mad. But that is a universal rule in life. I will tell you that. <laughs> That's important. But we're just not covering that this morning anyway. So you see, just like you saw in Psalm 23, let there be. Let there be goodness and mercy throughout our lives. And we say amen. When you say amen, that means you believe that. And we take time to look behind us and, and write down, identify. Or, or if you don't write it down, identify it. And thank God for it. But Wait as they say on television. There's more. In the end of Psalm 23, there's a second let there be. What is it? Let there be a place for me in the house of God forever. That's wonderful. That's a good one. Let there be a place for me in the house of God forever. God said, let there be a place for you in the house of God forever. Now, this is a flower pot. 
And there is a blossom of this verse in the New Testament. Anybody think about it? John 14, both as 2 and 3. He says, my, he says, my father's house of many mansions, I go to prepare a place for you, as John has said. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself. Where I am, there you may be also. See, flower pot, flower. So there it is. So faith is taking God seriously. Now, how important is it to take God seriously? Or, here's another way of putting that. How important is it to have faith? Do Do you see that? Faith is taking God seriously. That's what faith is. Taking God seriously. That's what faith is, right? So how important is it to have faith in life? All right, turn to Hebrews 11.6. What's another definition for faith? Taking God seriously. So taking God seriously equals faith. Faith equals taking God seriously. But without faith, it was what? Impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now let's plug in our new definition. But without what? Without taking God seriously, it's what? Impossible to please him. If you don't take God seriously, it's impossible to please him. Isn't that true for you? If you said something and people didn't take you seriously, how would you get kind of angry after a while, you know? Will you take me seriously already? Tom, that was a great exhortation on taking God seriously today. And to think that without faith, we cannot please him if anything we do doesn't involve faith in the Lord. We know that everyone who is in heaven today was saved by faith. So can you tell us what is the Bible's exact definition of what faith is? Well, it's interesting because in Hebrews 11.1, 1, the Bible actually gives a definition of faith. And it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, when you read that, that definition there, you immediately might say to yourself, wait a minute, that's not uh, something that I understand. What does that mean, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? Well, there's a whole chapter that comes after it in uh, Hebrews 11 that really um, that substantiates what that means. But just to, to put it very succinctly, When it says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, that's referring to something inside of us. In other words, we have faith, and that faith is evidenced by substantial things that we hope for. It says the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith, the subject of faith, is things not seen. If you see something, then faith is not necessary because that's seen. But if you don't see something, for example, heaven, you don't see heaven. But if you really believe to the point where something substantial occurs in your life as a result of your belief in heaven, then that's faith. And then what happens here in this description that goes on further in in Hebrews 11 are examples of people that did something of substance. They did something that you could look at and put your finger on and say, oh, now that's evidence. I see evidence. Evidence of what? That he believed 
in something not seen, that he believed in something that he hoped for. So another synonym for for faith is belief. But he's saying here in Hebrews 11.1 that you might almost say real faith has substance to it in the sense that it changes a person's life. It causes them to do something different that they otherwise wouldn't have done if they didn't have faith. For example, if I go on in my life and I just keep sinning and sinning and sinning and don't show any concern about it, that is substance and that is evidence that I am not hoping to stand before a God of holiness and justice. That's, uh, that's evidence that, that I do not believe in the not seen God who will judge all sin. But if I carry out my life and do the very best I can and shun away from sin, and then that is a substance that I hope to stand before the God who hates sin. That's the evidence that there is a God who hates sin that's not seen. So this, is, this definition of faith is really referring to what happens differently in the person's life who has faith. And that means that he has something substantial that you can put your finger on, some evidence that you can point to and say, aha, you see, he really does hope. He really does believe in these things not seen because he has done this or not done this in his life. Tom, to continue dovetailing on faith, you spoke about taking God seriously today. It was a very interesting way to define faith as taking God seriously. Now, can you give us some biblical examples where God and the issue of faith was to take him seriously? Yeah. In Second Chronicles 7.14, it really, you can look at this verse and say the issue is taking God seriously. What he said in Second Chronicles 7.14 is, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What he's saying here is that if my people will take me seriously, and how are they going to take him seriously? How are they going to show that they're taking him seriously? There will be, as we just said before, the evidence and the substance of changes that will happen in their lives. First, he said, the person who takes God seriously humbles himself. Why is that important? Because God has said there's only one person who is high and lifted up, and that is the Lord God. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is high and lifted up. And for a person to make himself high and lifted up, as in pride, is to, is, is to run directly against what he said about that when he said that he hates pride. These six things does the Lord hate. And the first on the list from King Solomon uh, in Proverbs was a proud look. And he said that God resists the proud. So the first thing in taking God seriously, according to what he said here, is to humble, humble themselves. Second is to pray. 
And what God is referring to in prayer here is not these memorized, mindless, now I lay me down to sleep prayer, but really the prayer where there's the engagement of the heart, where you almost could say, you know, I'm going to picture myself praying. I'm going to go in a room, close the door. I will set it down a chair. I'll sit in the chair. I'll put another chair opposite me, and I'm going to talk to God as if he's sitting in that chair. That's taking God seriously. And then it says, seek his face. In other words, to yearn, to have that, 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 that yearning and that desire. I must really connect with God. I've got to connect with God. That's seeking his face. And then he said, taking him seriously is to turn from the wicked ways. In other words, to understand in my life, there is this sin. I'm going to take God seriously. I know how much he hates sins. I know how much it grieves his heart for me to be involved in this that I should not. Watch me. I'm going to turn. And when God sees the person take him seriously by humbling themselves, by really praying from their heart, by seeking the face of God, by turning their lives around and not continuing in the paths of sin, turning from their wicked ways, then God says, you know what? You're taking me seriously. And he says, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. You know, it's interesting, too, that when God spoke to Ezekiel, he said, when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked shall die in his iniquity. Now, he says here, when I say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and then it says, and the wicked the same wicked, does not turn from his iniquity. So God is calling out, and he's saying to to the world and to us, this sin you have to turn from. You have to seek me. You must seek me to be forgiven. And when a person does not do that, which is possible to do, as in the case of your address in Ezekiel, then God says the wicked will die in his iniquity. He will die in his iniquity. That's what Ezekiel said. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about those who die in their sins. This is also the same meaning here when he says die in his iniquity. How do you die in your iniquity? You hear God and you don't respond. How do you not die in your iniquity? You hear God and you take him seriously and you turn from the wickedness. That's what God said. One person actually called in today to friendship with God and said that they become righteous by doing good works. What does the Bible say about how we become righteous? You know, this is such an important issue, especially with our Jewish friends, on how does a person become righteous? You know, we see that in in the Bible, the, the very clear reference to becoming righteous in the very early stages in the life of Abraham. Abraham is so important. Abraham is our father. We want to become children of Abraham, meaning that we, not by birth, but by following Abraham's example. 
And something Abraham did made him righteous. And it's spoken of in Genesis 15, 5 through 6. And God had given him a promise. And the promise was that he was to look up to heaven and look at the stars. And he and God told Abraham, if you can number the stars, he said, then your seed is going to be like the number of the stars. Now, here was Abraham. He didn't have any children. He was a very old man. For all intents and purposes, it looked like he would never have any children. So this was God saying to Abraham, believe me, Abraham, when I tell you the impossible that you're going to have a lot of children. And then it says in verse 6, this very simple statement, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Righteousness from God comes as we believe God. Abraham believed God, and he was righteous because he believed God, not for what he did but for what he believed and who he believed. He believed the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed what God said. That's why we read the Bible. We read the Bible because God is, because that's God's word. When we read the Bible, that's our opportunity to be righteous by believing, just believing what God did. As far as all the works go in the midst of us, the Lord Jesus Christ did all those works for us so that we can be righteous by his works. As far as all our sins go, the Lord Jesus Christ died for us so we could be righteous righteous by paid debt. Thank you for joining us today. Join us again tomorrow as Tom Cantor continues our study out of the book of Genesis. Now, do you have a Jewish person that you'd like to reach with the gospel? Well, you can call us at 1-800-247-3051. We can help you to fulfill God's command to go to his lost nation of Jewish people first. That's one 800 247 3051. We can help you to send a gospel gift to them. So call us again at 1-800-247-3051. We'd also like to hear from you about what you like about Friendship with God. You can also call us and get a copy of today's broadcast. So just call us at 1-800-247-3051. And we have many resources that are available for you to reach lost Jewish people with. Thanks again for listening today and join us again tomorrow at the same time.